All right. Um, kings and queens over the centuries have often been given, like, I don't know what it's called. It's not a title. It's, a, it's a, an add-on to their name, right? The some, something, someone, the, some, the something, right? So Alexander, the great. Catherine, the great. Alfred, the great. Yes, okay. They were the only three that were called the great, but there are them. There's a whole bunch of others, right? Louis, the sun king. Anybody know about Louis, the sun king? He was a French dude. He is currently the second longest reigning monarch in history and Queen Lizzie is about to overtake him in about a month's time. Go Queen Liz. Not this Liz. The other one. <laughs> here's, a, here's a few others, right? Athelred the Unready. <laughs> like many of your children before school, perhaps even like many of your husbands before church. Um, he was unprepared and unready for the Viking invasion in uh, England uh, in about 800 or 980. Richard the Lionheart, we know about him. It's funny that you've never heard of, you know, Richard the Mouseheart um, or something like that. There, there's, there's Vlad the Impaler. It, it, apparently it's his story that, that gave rise to a lot of the stories about Count Dracula. Um, Vlad the Impaler literally impaled people for fun. That's what he did. Uh, there's, there's Bloody Mary, or Mary the Bloody, I guess. Charles Martel, or in English, Charles the Hammer. He was a French king as well in the about 700s, and he stopped the advance of, the, of, of Islam that had come up through Africa into Spain and was advancing through France. He put an end to that. Um, we've got Edward the Confessor, who spent more time in confession than he did in preparing for yet another Viking invasion. Pretty much lost his kingdom because he was too religious. Um, you have William the Conqueror, or as he was sometimes known, uh, William the, Bo uh, the Illegitimate. <clears throat> um, he was the son of Robert the Devil, which tells you all you need to know about that family. You also had... Um, Edward, was Edward? Yes, Edward III. Um, officially Edward III, but no one really liked him. Um, so you've got a different name there. Uh, you've got Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen. Virginia was named after her. Charles, the Merry Monarch. George, the Gentleman. I think that was George II. I think it was George III that was Mad King George. George the Mad. I think it was also him that we get the nursery rhyme, Georgie Porgy Pudding and Pie, Kissed the Girls and Made Them Cry. He did a lot more than just kiss the girls, but he certainly made them cry. Um, you've got William, the sailor king. I didn't know anything about him. Um, and I tell you this, if Harry, by any chance, ever makes the throne, I think he'll become Harry the, Harry the henpecked. That's just my thinking. And it's not just royalty that gets the add-ons, right? We've got Bob the Builder. Who likes Bob the Builder? Bob's cool. Um, we have Postman Pat, which could become Pat the Postman. Which sounds like a fun game, doesn't it? It's like when the postman's running around the block, you know, chase, pet the postman. Um, you've got Andre the Giant, Chance the, anyone know? Chance the Rapper. What does he do? He's a rapper, Chance the Rapper. Megan the Stallion, Conan, the Barbarian. If you had an add-on to your name, what would you be? We've got Ringo the Baptist. Right here, we're missing Ringo up front, but we have met Ringo the Baptist. I don't know, we'd have, we, we could have Chris the Baker. I'm not sure what else. Any, anyone else? Any other suggestions? Not a one. Did none of you have like an add-on name? No. It's very sad, isn't it? We'll have to find some later today. We're going to read this morning about Philip the Evangelist. And we're also going to read a little bit about Simon the sorcerer as well. So Philip the evangelist is the only guy in the Bible that gets that particular add-on. He's the only one that's called the evangelist. Um, Philip, like Stephen that we read about last week, was one of the seven guys who'd been set aside to serve tables and to deal with uh, the tensions in the early church to help deal with the food crisis. But we are going to see him today in a slightly different role. I'm going to ask Dean and Linthia to come and read for us this morning. It's a long passage, but I was like, we have to read the whole story. All right. So um, if you want to follow along in Acts chapter 8, 40 verses. And sorry, apologies for the screen. There's something dodgy up there. Um, we've asked the school. Who knows? Thank you. Acts chapter 8, 
reading from the New International Version, from verse 1. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of men, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Okay. Uh, Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this mission, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness, and pray to the Lord, in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After that, they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus. Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Okay, this story goes on to Philip and the Ethiopian. Now an angel of the Lord said, Go south into the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, and an important official in charge of all the treachery of the Candidate, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of the Zion prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said. Unless someone explains it to you. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is a passage of scripture. Scripture in the Christian He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a man before the shearer decided, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who could speak of this of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. You know, Oscar, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. You know, you know said, look. There is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop 
and we both fill up the minimum and we down to the water and fill up that tons. And they came up under the water, the spirit of the water suddenly took Philip away. He did not see him again. But when Tony's made rejoicing, Philip, however, did at Azotus and travelled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. That's it. Thanks, guys. forgotten about this, but since we were saying goodbye to Joy, we should say goodbye to Linthia as well, because she's back again. Oh, she's going to be here next Sunday. Okay, okay, cool. Then we can say goodbye to Linthia next week. So, you know, there are a couple of stories in that passage, aren't there? Um, And I could have turned this into about three or four sermons, um, but sometimes... Sometimes you get caught up in the little events that take place and you miss out on what is the bigger intention of the author. And so that's why I wanted to deal with the entire chapter in one hit this morning, which means we're going to end up skipping over some of the detail of the story. Because the bigger story is this. The bigger story is that the good news has finally left Jerusalem and it goes into Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There is, in this passage this morning, some sense of the fulfillment of the words that Jesus spoke in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So I'm guessing, I'll tell you why in a moment, but I'm guessing that this is about a year after the crucifixion of Jesus. And in, that, in the space of that year, most of the time it stayed in Jerusalem. But here and now, in this point, it is beginning to move. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is finally going to go to the very bottom of the world. So uh, a quick look at our picture, if it'll stop flashing much. Uh, we have, this is what we've been working on over the last little while, that we are gospel-centered in everything we do. The gospel is what drives us, and it drives us in different directions. And this morning, it's the flashed off to the left that we are called to love the world in mission, called to go into all the world, and that's what's going on here. So before we really get into our sermon this morning, um, let me just ask you to pray for those who are part of our church, who do this professionally. There are some professional missionaries. And we need to keep praying for our professional missionaries. I hate that word, right? But let's use it for now anyway, um, because we'll try and deal with that later. But, but Greg and Donna, um, who want to become members of our church, have been spending the last, I don't know, a couple, few times in the last few weeks, have been up in Lesotho, um, taking the gospel to Lesotho, out into the middle of nowhere out there, um, spending time with pastors, teaching and training and encouraging pastors as they take the good news of the gospel to parts of the world where people still have not heard of Jesus. To pray for Dan and Kerry, professional missionaries. (laughs) Um, They've just got involved in yet another children's home. Uh, Am I right, Dan? In the last couple of weeks, another children's home, setting up gardens, teaching them um, to, to, to farm and harvest, and through that, preaching the gospel and presenting the good news of Jesus. So pray for these official missionaries this morning. But we're going to see today that you don't need to be a professional to do the work that God has called the church to do. So we start this morning, we start, Dean and Linthea started by reading for us the, the church being scattered. You can actually switch this thing off because it's just going to flash all morning. It's, flip, it's annoying. Um, <coughs> I can just see it in the corner of my eye. So Saul is a young guy. Um, and and we, we think that he's attached to the synagogue of the freedmen. And we encountered the synagogue of the freedmen last week. There were several synagogues in Jerusalem at the time, and this particular synagogue seemed to cater for Jewish people who had grown up outside of Israel, who'd grown up outside of Jerusalem. And so we've got, the, we've got Saul, who is a, a lawyer, training to be a Pharisee, grown up outside of Israel, and I think he was part of the, the synagogue of the freed men. And you'll remember last week, perhaps, that they got angry with Stephen because every time anybody in that synagogue got into a debate with Stephen, they lost the argument. And you'll remember Joe's response last week of, what do you do with your husband when you lose the argument? And her response was, kill him. 
And that's exactly what Saul thinks, right? He's the one, he's the forefront man in the synagogue. He's the one who's training to be a lawyer. He's the one, I think, that's getting into debates with Stephen and keeps losing. And at the end of it, Saul says, here's what I'm going to do with the guy that I keep losing to, kill him. And so Saul is the guy who's standing there, not just watching this execution, but giving some kind of legitimacy to it giving his approval as one of the leaders of the synagogue and saying, yeah, this guy should die. Saul then becomes the focal point of this outbreak of persecution in the city of Jerusalem. Men and women are dragged off to jail, and jail back then was essentially a a, a holding cell for your execution. That's kind of what jail is about. One of the English translations says that that Paul began to wreak havoc upon the church in Jerusalem. Out to destroy it. How how he must have hated Stephen and everything that Stephen stood for and everything that Stephen died for. And so what happens is the believers who are in Jerusalem run away. They're scattered like a farmer scatters his seed throughout Jerusalem. Judea, and even into Samaria. The apostles stay in Jerusalem. Perhaps they go undercover. There needs to be some, somewhere where, where the church is being organized and where there is still some measure of know, leadership for the church to coordinate the ministry of the church as it spreads and goes. But here's the cool thing. Wherever the scattered believers end up, they preach the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean that they arrive in some town, build a church, set up a pulpit, and some guy gets up to preach like I'm doing this morning. The word preach is far too formal for what they're actually doing. And a better word for it is they gossiped the gospel. Any of you gossip? Hmm. Any of you know someone who gossips? Maybe don't even answer that. But wherever they go, they're just gossiping the gospel. They're telling people the good news of Jesus. Right, so Jesus has told them to go into the whole world, and in the first year, they haven't gone beyond the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And something needs to happen to get these disciples to leave Jerusalem and to get out and take the good news out. And what is it that happens? Persecution. Bad stuff. They lose their house. They lose their job. They have to leave school. They're in fear of their life. And so the church then is kind of forced out, and wherever they go, the good news is spread. It's not the apostles who are going out and doing this. They haven't, as far as we know, haven't been a whole bunch of training courses and video material and clever things to do on how to do this. It's just ordinary people who love Jesus, who have gone out and said, let me tell you the good news. And what's interesting, of course, is that they're arriving in these new communities and people are saying to them, gee, what are you doing here? And they're saying, well, we've come with good news. We're running for our lives. There's a guy called Saul. He's trying to kill me. I've lost my house. I've lost my job. I've probably had my bank account closed. I've got the clothes on my back. But good news. Doesn't sound like much good news, does it? I think us in a similar position would be going, oh, oh, it's so bad. Can't understand why God would allow something like this to happen to me. But these guys are going saying, there is good news. All this is good news. And they're announcing the good news of the kingdom. See, these guys have allowed their harsh circumstances to be a good gospel opportunity. And you know how often that is the case? How many times I've encountered people who, within the church, church people anyway, who who have cancer, and yet allow that cancer to be a moment of gospel good news, an opportunity to tell others of the goodness of Jesus. And you're like, but you've got cancer. Yes, but I also have Jesus. How often people in the midst of tragedy, with that tragedy becomes an opportunity for the gospel. Jason Normandy will tell you about that over the last six weeks, eight weeks, of how their life tragedy has become such an opportunity for gospel witness in the world around them. How often our tragedy 
is an opportunity to share the good news. Now, we're gathered here this morning, and we're going to leave afterwards and be scattered into our community. I, I hope I don't have to force you to leave this morning, unleash persecution on you. The coffee is that bad, you have to go, right? But we're going to be scattered into our community. And tomorrow we'll be scattered even further as we go to work and as we go to school. And, and what should we be doing as we're scattered? Well, we should follow the example of the early church and we should go out and preach the gospel. Do you need a little box so you can stand on your box in the office and do something really cringy? No. You don't all have to be Angus and gather a crowd of a couple of thousand. But we can and should look for and pray for opportunities to just simply share the good news. To encounter someone this week that just needs to hear, them, hear you say, Jesus loves you. To be able to say to someone that you encountered this week, can I pray for you? And I know that is a scary, terrifying, frightening prospect for many of you. To actually go up to someone, to a stranger perhaps, or even worse, a family member, and tell them that Jesus loves them. That's a terrifying thing. I've got to tell you this. I am not Chris the Evangelist. I'm Chris the preacher. I try to be Chris the pastor. So I know that being Chris the evangelist is an, an uncomfortable thing to do. But I also know that it doesn't require a degree in theology to bump into someone and say, Jesus loves you. Can I pray for you? And see, here's the challenge to throw down this week. That you would pray and look for the one opportunity to tell that one person that Jesus loves them this week. Terrifying, I know. Terrifying. Don't have to preach a sermon, but be brave. As we're scattered, gossip the gospel. Gossip the good news. Now, one of those guys who's scattered is this guy called Philip, right? And he's, like I said, he's one of the seven. He's just some guy who's been appointed to hand out food. He's, um, again, he's not particularly, uh, he's not one of the higher ups in the church. He's not an apostle. He's just this guy. And he's filled with the Spirit, but then every Christian is filled with the Spirit. He has some wisdom, apparently, but then, and yeah, some of us should seek more of that. Um, but he's one of these guys who's on the run. He's one of these guys who, for fear of his life, has left the city of Jerusalem. He's running away from Saul. He's running away from the possibility of ending up in jail. And he heads off not just into Judea, but into Samaria. Now, if you've been part of church and church life for any amount of time, then you will know a little bit about the Jews and the Samaritans and how that all worked. Once upon a time... There was a civil war, and the Jewish nation divided in two. There was the north and there was the south. And the north got invaded, and the majority of the people who lived in the north got taken away into, um, into exile and were scattered all over the world, intermarried with all sorts of people, and got lost. They don't exist anymore. There were a handful of peasants left in the northern kingdom. And the guys who invaded them repopulated the land with all sorts of foreigners from all over the place. And they intermarried. And like to claim that they still had some kind of Jewish heritage, but the guys in the south said, you're not Jewish, you're of mixed blood, you're not really Jewish. The guys in the north got all upset about that and said, well fine, we'll make up our own religion. And so they did. And so they took the Old Testament and said, we don't like most of it, we just like the first five books. You can keep the prophets and the Psalms and the rest for yourselves, we're only going to have the first five books, and we're going to be better than you guys in the south, we're going to build our own temple. And so they did, they built a temple, and then the guys in the south were unhappy with the fact that they had their own temple, and so they got made mates with the Greeks, and the Greeks together with the guys in the south went and destroyed that temple. And so you can understand that there's some tension between north and south. The north is the Samaritans. They've been called half-breeds, they've been called dogs, they've been called heretics. Any God-fearing Jew from the south who lives in Jerusalem wouldn't even go through Samaria. So if you want to go somewhere north, you would travel around the country. You take the long route and spend extra on donkey food and whatever to get there because you don't want to take the shortcut and go through Samaria in case you accidentally actually have to interact with 
a Samaritan. And here's this guy, Philip, and he goes to Samaria. It's unheard of. Because up till now, the gospel has been for Jews. Up till now, it's been understood that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish religion. And so up till now, this, this new religion that's forming, that's not even called Christianity yet, it's just the way, is really just a sect of the Jewish religion. And there was this understanding that in order, if, if, you really, if you were not Jewish and wanted to follow Jesus the Messiah, you had to become Jewish first. You had to become culturally Jewish. You had to adopt and absorb Jewish, Jewish practices and Jewish language and Jewish words. And you had to absorb all the Jewish culture. That gets knocked down in a couple of years' time, but that knocking down of that strange understanding of you've got to be Jewish to love Jesus actually gets, begins to get knocked down here by Philip. Because Philip goes into, this Samaria, into the Samaria and doesn't ask that Samaritans become Jewish, doesn't ask that they, have, that they begin to adopt Jewish customs and Jewish traditions and Jewish laws, he goes in and announces the good news that Jesus has come. He comes in and announces the good news. And the good news that he preaches changes lives. Evil spirits leave. Sick people get better. Apparently, he says, lame people stop telling lame jokes. <laughs> That's what he says. The cripples walk. The city is filled with joy. Clearly, I haven't heard the good news yet because I'm still lame. Um, but the good news changes the city. The city is filled with joy because that's what the good news does. It's the good news that changes culture. It's the good news that changes the world around us. It's the good news that brings joy. When the good news comes, it's the good news that Jesus is king and that the king comes with justice and righteousness and peace. And when you hear that message, it is good news because justice replaces injustice in the city and righteousness rules in the city, not law. And because there is peace with God. I've got to say, I don't think that the church always seems to announce that kind of good news, does it? I think there are times when the good news announces new rules and new regulations and stop smiling. Can't, you, you can't be funny because, no, God doesn't like that. This church often <laughs> announces a rather sad news of law and rule and ritual. But Peter announces good news and lives are changed and the city is changed for the better. And, and the news that Philip is preaching good news reaches the apostles in Jerusalem. And I can imagine them sitting there going, what has Philip done? Is he mad? What on earth? He's gone. He's gone, to, he's gone to Samaria. And so the apostles say, we need to send someone to check this out to see if this is legit. And so they send Peter and John to go and check out what, 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 what Philip's doing. And they arrive there and they see that, uh, they, they discover that actually the good news is for Samaritans. That the good news is for the outcasts. The good news is for the despised. The good news is for those people, for, for them. The good news is for them. And then, without getting lost in it, you can come and talk to me later about it, but the, the, this fact that the good news is for the Samaritans is confirmed by the fact that God delays the arrival of the Holy Spirit so that the apostles are there to witness that the Holy Spirit has come upon these people. And this really is true. So this is not meant to be the normal way in which you become a Christian, that you, know, you become a Christian and 10 years later you get the Holy Spirit. No, no, we get the Holy Spirit when we're born again. But God in his sovereignty delays it for this moment so that the apostles are there to authenticate that this good news really is for the outcasts. It really is for these Samaritans. And so Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is being fulfilled. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And woven into the story is the story of Simon the sorcerer. So you've got Philip the evangelist, and he's given that name in Acts chapter 21. And you've also got Simon the sorcerer. And there are parallels between the two of them. For years, Simon has been around the towns in Samaria. And the people, 
we're told here in Acts 8, have paid close attention to Simon. They've listened to what he said. They've watched what he has done. And Simon has had a huge influence over the people in Samaria. They call him the divine power. And you begin to wonder if perhaps he's called himself that. That he's declaring himself to be some kind of Messiah. Some kind of divinity on earth. And the people around him certainly have elevated him to godlike status. And they're giving attention to this man and to his sorcery. Right? He's, he's a magician performing acts of power. He does magic. And he's not a magician that you invite to your children's party who will do card tricks and pull rabbits out of a hat. Right? He's not doing the abracadabra thing. He is using, he's tapping into demonic power. He's claiming to speak to the dead. He's able to put curses on different people. He's a bit like a Sangoma on steroids. He's a bad guy. And so you've got this guy who's performing acts of power and magic, and you've got people who are paying close attention to him. That can't be good. And then Philip comes along, and we read that the people pay close attention to Philip. Philip also comes along. He also performs signs and wonders. And there's this shifting of allegiance from paying attention to Simon to paying attention to Philip, going from Simon the sorcerer to Philip the evangelist. And what's interesting is that, I mean, Philip's performing these acts of power, not by sorcery, but by the Spirit of God. He's healing the sick and he's casting out demons. So you've got two people performing acts of power, and the city is deciding who we should pay close attention to. And the people in the city we're reading, I'll begin to pay close attention to what Philip says. It's not what Philip does. And I think often we sometimes think that people will pay attention to us if we can perform signs and wonders, that miracles are necessary. But the crowd are listening to what Philip says far more than what he does. Now, Oftentimes, when it comes to reading stories in the Bible, we try and figure out who we are and who we're meant to be in the story. And we, what we tend to do is because it's the nature of who we are as human beings, we tend to look for the hero in the story and we go, we must be like that. And so we, we read this story. And the general application, most of the, in fact, every sermon that I read this week on this, uh, it, just about everyone that's, that read it said, we must be like Philip. Be bold like Philip. And, and there's truth in that. And I'll, I'll mention that again in a, again in a moment. But, but that tends to be the sole point of the story, right? Be bold like Philip. Be an evangelist and go tell people about Jesus, which is great. But sometimes I think it's helpful to get, dig a little deeper. And instead of starting off by painting ourselves as the hero of the story, Look and see if we find ourselves elsewhere. And let me say this. That I think it's better for us to begin the story and going, we're actually the Samaritans in the story. We're out actually the outcasts and the dogs. Well, maybe not dogs. I don't know. And the big deal is that we need to consider which voice we're listening to. Because there are two voices, and there are two powers, and we all, every single one of us, grew up listening to the voice of Simon, and gave attention to the voice of Simon. We live in a world where there is power at work, and there is a power that is destructive, and that is evil, and that seeks to leave us broken and lost. It's, it's the, the word of a curse wrapped in a pretty bow. And all of our Simons tell us that success is around the corner. Grab while you can when you can get it. Live for today. It's all about you. And the voice amazes us. And we're mesmerized by the voice and what it offers. And it is the voice of the snake in the garden that tells us you can be like a god. But then a second voice enters the picture. 
And Jesus, the evangelist, arrives and he announces a different way. He announces different news, good news, news that will break the curse, news that brings freedom from slavery, news that restores the soul, bringing a life of joy and peace. And we would do well to pay attention to that voice. And so before we all get worked up about, yes, we need to be like Philip the evangelist, recognize that we're all actually starting off like the Samaritans. That we've been under the influence of the great sorcerer, of the necromancer, who has deceived us for years. And his voice still tickles our ears. But there's a different voice. And the big question, before we even get to who you should be like, the big question is just, which voice are you paying close attention to? Stop listening to Simon. Stop listening to that voice in your head that says you're not good enough, that you can't be loved, that you'll never make it. Stop listening to the best advice, advice in the world that says you can be whatever you want to be. Grab what you can now and here. Because this world simply cannot and does not offer good news. Simon's power could never get cripples walking. Simon's message never brought joy. Let's pay attention to what Jesus says. And that's what it means in our little picture. That's what it means to be gospel-centered. That it's not just be like Simon. That becomes a little bit law-centered. Be good, try harder, be Simon. But instead, if we get the gospel and go, I was a Samaritan. And Jesus came to me and brought good news to me. And I've been transformed from a Samaritan into a part of the kingdom of God. That changes the motivation of our heart. What's kind of fun about the story is that it ends up with Peter and John going back to Jerusalem, but they go back to Jerusalem by stopping in every single city and village and town of Samaritans along the way, announcing the good news. And you've got to kind of see the irony in this, because it was just a year and a half earlier that John was standing with his brother next to Jesus, looking down on some Samaritan villagers, saying, Lord, please, let us call down fire from heaven, and let's burn these villagers. And now the guy who wanted to burn the Samaritans is actually going around the villages, announcing and declaring and proclaiming the good news that Jesus saves. And the good news doesn't end in Samaria. The Spirit speaks to Philip and says, it's time for you to leave. It's time for you to leave Samaria, and you need to go south now. You need to go back through Jerusalem, if you want to risk that, or perhaps you go around Jerusalem and avoid Saul, and you need to go back down and all the way through to the bottom, to the very edge of the desert, to a dry and dusty road in the middle of nowhere. And I can imagine Philip going, but why? There is such good, good stuff happening here in Samaria. My, my ministry is flourishing. We could build a cathedral, Right? We could get things going here. We should get a band. Let's do this, you know. And, and God says, you need to leave Samaria and you need to go to the bottom of the bottom where no one ever goes and go stand in the corner of a dusty old road and wait there. I'll tell you what to do next. And Philip obeys and goes and stands at the edge of the, of the road at the bottom of the desert and encounters the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, this guy is high up in, uh, the, in, in the royal hierarchy of a great empire in Africa. Um, Ethiopia back then was not confined to the same borders that Ethiopia has today. It was pretty much all of from, from the border of Ethiopia today and south. That was Ethiopia. It was a place of wealth. And this guy is well, he's the treasurer of the palace. He, he's, a high up, he's a high up dude. He's, he's the royal hierarchy of the greatest empire in Africa at the time. He, he, he may well be a proselyte. In other words, he's converted from whatever his religion is to Judaism. And he's no doubt a black guy. And he's been in Jerusalem on holiday. But I don't think he's been there just as a tourist. I suspect he's been there on a feast week. And this is why I think this story is about one year after the crucifixion. Because he's riding home, reading from Isaiah 53, which Ronnie read for us this morning. And where would you associate Isaiah 53 and the feast and festivals of Israel other than at Passover? And Jesus died at Passover, 
And I just wonder if this is a year later, just after the next Passover. Kind of makes sense. And here he is, on his way home from the center of religion, having seen magnificent buildings, having participated in sacrifices, having seen the high priest and all his finery over there, having perhaps been washed with water by someone, having participated in all of this stuff, even eaten a little bit of lamb, and, and he's on the road home and has no idea about any good news. He's come and had a wonderful religious experience, but the experience has not resulted in anything good for him. And so now Philip goes from being Philip the mass evangelist to Philip the one and one evangelist and says to this guy as he's riding past, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And the, the, the Ethiopian's like, I have no clue. And so Philip gets up into the cart with him and, and, and starting from Isaiah 53 says, let me tell you about Jesus. And declares the good news to this guy too. And the good news of Jesus is this from Isaiah 53, that he takes our burdens off, that he frees us from the law, that he, he fulfills the law so that it's not about being good and trying hard to be better. That it's about Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who was beaten and bruised and crushed for us, that we might live. And the response by the Ethiopian is, is the same as the Samaritans. He wants to be baptized, just like they wanted to be baptized. He is filled with joy, just like they're filled with joy, because there is joy that comes in the good news. Now, here's the thing. At the time, the Jews considered Ethiopia, and I think not just the Jews, but probably the Romans and the Greeks as well, considered Ethiopia to be the extreme end of the earth in the hot south. They couldn't conceive of anything beyond Ethiopia. So can you see that in Acts chapter 8, there is a sense in which Acts chapter 1 verse 8 has been fulfilled. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And who's taken it to the ends of the earth? The professional missionaries that we pay? The professional apostles to get the job done? No. It's just an ordinary guy, Philip, who's just being obedient, who's just just gossiping the gospel. And he tells this good news to an Ethiopian, a black dude, who comes back to Ethiopia and starts not just a little church, but starts a church planting movement that's still running today. And yes, it's got a little bit mixed up over the years, but the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth with some little guy. Is spreading the good news of the gospel up to people like Dan and Greg and Donna and Brian and Jenny and me and Bernice? We're, we're, we're paid, right? We're the professional. No. A random dude called Philip the Evangelist. Just this guy. A table server. And he's the means of the initial fulfillment of Acts chapter 1 verse 8. At the end of this chapter, you read that whole thing about the Spirit takes Philip away, and some people have this idea that maybe it's kind of a, a beam-me-up Scotty transportation moment where he vanishes and suddenly reappears there. Maybe, uh, but it could just as well just be that the Spirit says, right, Philip, you've got to go back, and Philip says goodbye to the Ethiopian, and they part ways, and the, the Ethiopian can't see him anymore. Why? Cloud of dust over the horizon. He's gone. And he appears, not just like, boop, suddenly appears, but just like the next time anyone sees him, he's in this town of Azotus. And he preaches, and he goes gossiping the gospel in all the towns around there on his way to Caesarea. And he's, now Philip is preaching to Gentiles in all these little Gentile towns. And in Acts chapter 21, Paul, Saul, who's become Paul, and Luke stop over in Philip's house for the night. And they stay with Philip the Evangelist and his four prophesying daughters. And so again, because of being driven by the gospel, what are you known as? Chris the lazy. Chris the sleeper. Chris the entertainer. Chris the TV watcher. Chris the chip and chocolate eater. Chris the bald. I should just point out that there was an article uh, in the news yesterday that in England, someone has sued 
um, and it is now considered sexual harassment to call someone bald. Just putting it out there, legit, it's in the news. Um, but yeah, Chris the what? Greg the what? Heather the what? Keen the what? Francis the what? Dave and Debbie the what? Dave the bald. <laughs> I'll take that. How much better to be known as you know, Chris the follower? Georgina the Christ follower? Mandy the herald of good news? Ivan the terrible... I mean, <laughs> Ivan the evangelist. Because if we really are the recipients of good news, if we really are the ones who've experienced the good news of Jesus and heard that he has set us free from our chains and our demons and given us joy, then surely that's good news that the whole world needs to hear. And so we're scattered. We're going to be scattered later. We're going to be scattered through this week. And as we're scattered, like God's seeds scattered all over the place, won't we be scattered and let people know that there is good news, that there is a better voice to listen to than Simon the sorcerer. And let's be part of this movement that takes the good news from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the very ends of the earth. Let's pray. I'm going to ask the band to come up as well. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your good news, that you have appointed us to be heralds of this good news, that you've called us to be bold and to announce to declare, to gossip, to spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus. That you have brought us great joy. So Lord, give us boldness. Give us boldness. I pray this week, Lord, that you would um, bring about moments and bring people in our path who we would be able to share some measure of the good news with. Give us, O oh Lord, opportunities to simply say, Jesus loves you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing, God so loved the world. And let's drive that into our souls. And if we really believe it, let's tell the world that it's true. Oh, sorry. We had to sw oh, you switched it on again. Thank you, Greg. Sorry. Sorry, Greg. That's great. Here we go. Come all you weary, come all you weary, come to the water that never runs dry. Drink of the water, come and thirst no more. Come to the table, he will satisfy. Taste of his goodness, find what you're looking for. For God so loved the world that he gave us, his one and only son to save, whoever believes in him will live Come lay them down at the foot of the cross. Jesus is waiting there with open arms. God so loved the world that he gave us, his one and only son to save forever.
is one and only Son to save. For God so loved the world that He gave us is one and only Son to save. Whoever believes in Him shall live forever. The power of hell forever defeated. Now it is well. I'm walking. Jesus is waiting there, so love the world. And now, Lord, as we leave here, may we go with your blessing, with the presence of your Spirit, with the grace of Jesus alive in us. Amen. So glad. I see that. I'm